0: future of access to the FDA-approved abortion pill Mifepristone is unclear after a conflicting set of federal court rulings. It's Monday, April 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shunoy. Coming up, questions over the ethics rules surrounding Supreme Court justices after the ProPublica report on the ties between Clarence Thomas and a wealthy donor. Also this hour, the warnings from workers in the railroad industry that longer freight trains and fewer workers are causing dangerous conditions.
1: A lot of those cuts have been in maintenance workers. Also these longer trains uh, tend to require more maintenance because they've got more stress on those machines.
0: Plus the off-season crops that farmers are planting to protect their soil and the link between filing your taxes and finding health insurance. In sports the Bruins break the NHL record for wins in a season sunny and in the 60s today. It's 7:01 now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Pentagon says it's working with multiple U.S. agencies urgently trying to figure out who leaked sensitive intelligence documents on the Ukraine war. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, it now appears the classified material was online for many weeks before it received widespread attention.
3: The FBI, the Justice Department, and intelligence agencies are all working with the Pentagon to find out who posted dozens of secret documents on social media sites. But there's no obvious suspect at the moment. It appears the material was initially posted well over a month ago on the social media site Discord, which is popular with young video game players. The documents sat there, seemingly unnoticed, until they were reposted on Twitter and Telegram last week. They look to be briefing slides with lots of maps and charts that are produced daily for Pentagon leaders and other national security officials. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington.
2: Two federal judges issued conflicting rulings last Friday on the status of the abortion medication mifepristone. A judge in Texas essentially ordered the Food and Drug Administration to take it off shelves all across the U.S. That includes in states where abortion is legal. A second judge in Washington state contradicted that, telling the FDA to keep the pill on the shelves. The issue is expected to move to a federal appeals court, maybe within days. The governing metro board in Nashville, Tennessee, is meeting later today. A majority of members say they will vote to reinstate ousted Tennessee lawmaker Justin Jones to his seat until a special election is held. Jones and a second black lawmaker were thrown out of the legislature for protesting over gun violence. Nashville Vice Mayor Jim Shulman says expelling the lawmakers means tens of thousands of Tennesseans have been wrongly silenced.
4: They're speaking out. They're speaking out on some serious issues and they deserve to be heard. Um, this is democracy.
2: The other expelled lawmaker, Justin Pearson, is looking to a Wednesday meeting of the Shelby County, Tennessee Commission. Members there may also vote to reappoint him to his seat. Chinese ships and warplanes simulated precision strikes on Taiwan yesterday. As NPR's John Ruit reports, it's Beijing's response to Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen's travels to the U.S.
5: Beijing considers Taiwan a part of its territory. And even though Taiwan President Tsai's recent stop in California and another in New York were billed as unofficial, China called them a provocation. The military drills are slated to run through Monday. China mounted a similar response in August after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Those war games also involved the firing of missiles over Taiwan. Taiwan's defense ministry said it had tracked some 70 Chinese warplanes and nearly a dozen ships around the island. It said Taiwan's forces would not escalate the situation.
0: John Rewich reporting. It's NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Healey will outline her plans later today on mifepristone. That's the previously approved abortion pill that one federal judge ruled should no longer be available in the U.S. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports Healy is expected to maintain statewide access to the drug. The goal for this plan, crafted with input from abortion rights
6: advocates, is to preserve the two pill combination used in nearly half of all abortions completed in Massachusetts. Here's Reproductive Equity Now Director Rebecca Hartholder. Abortion care continues to be legal in Massachusetts and not impacted by the judge's decision. And that, you know, we have someone in the corner office who's going to fight with us against these attacks. Healy's plan may also be designed to calm confusion because federal courts have now issued contradictory rulings about the abortion pill Mifepristone. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: Groups opposed to abortion claim mifepristone is too widely available and dangerous, although studies show it's as safe as common over-the-counter medicines. Today is the first day on the job for the MBTA's new general manager. Philip Eng is tasked with solving the transit system's safety and reliability issues. His day will start by commuting into work on the T. He'll later tour a bus maintenance facility in Dorchester. Massachusetts lawmakers plan to restore some pandemic-era eviction protection for renters. The original protections expired last month. They prevent people from being evicted if they have an application in for rental assistance. House leaders tell the Boston Globe they're including it as part of their budget. If it's passed, those protections wouldn't go into place until the summer. An effort to support local restaurants still recovering from the pandemic is underway this week. The Greater Merrimack Valley Food Festival runs today through Friday. Participating businesses will offer a fixed-price menu for an appetizer, entree, and a dessert. Rick Lofria is the executive director of the Greater Merrimack Valley Convention and Visitors Bureau.
7: We look forward to making sure that these restaurants, some of the hottest hit right after pandemics and what have you, are promoted and receive the attention that they certainly deserve uh, based on the cuisines that they're putting out there for us and promote them to the region.
0: Restaurants in 21 cities and towns are participating. It's 7:06. We're funded by
8: you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. And Welch and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management
0: for individuals and families. Welchforbes.com. The Bruins set an NHL record with their 63rd win of the season last night. They beat the Flyers 5-3 to in Philadelphia. The Celtics ended their regular season yesterday with a 120-114 win over the Atlanta Hawks. And the Red Sox completed a series sweep of the Detroit Tigers. Boston won yesterday 4-1. to a warm and dry week ahead. Sunny today and in the lower 60s. Clear tonight and in the 40s. Sunny again tomorrow and in the 70s. It's 38 degrees in Boston at
9: 7.07. WBUR supporters include Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering, shrubs, and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide,
10: provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden in Washington, D.C.
11: And I'm a. Martinez in Culver City, California. Two federal judges issued a pair of conflicting rulings on Friday, creating uncertainty for future access to abortion pills.
10: A federal appeals court is expected to weigh in soon, possibly within days. Meanwhile, providers and patients are trying to prepare for whatever comes next.
11: NPR's Sarah McCammon joins us now to talk about this. Uh, Sarah, so what's this mean for someone who wants access to abortion pills right now?
12: Well, at the moment, a nothing, but the impact is likely to become a lot clearer very soon, maybe this week. What happened first on Friday was that a federal judge in Texas issued a ruling ordering the Food and Drug Administration to suspend its approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone nationwide. That's scheduled to go into effect this coming Friday. David Donati is an attorney with the ACLU of Texas, and he says the judge didn't give a lot of detail about what that means.
13: So, for example, If medication is already in pharmacies and has already been prescribed, can those prescriptions be filled? These are questions that the lowest court order just does not answer.
12: But an appeals court could answer that question. And the Justice Department has appealed to the Fifth Circuit. We may hear from them this week. But if we don't, the judge's order would take effect.
11: And then I mentioned earlier that other abortion pill case in play. That's a decision from a federal judge in Washington state. How does that factor into this?
12: right, 18 Democratic attorneys generals sued the FDA to try to protect access to Mifepristone. The federal judge in that case ruled also on Friday that, yes, the FDA should preserve access. His decision may offer at least some protection for access for people in those 17 states and the District of Columbia. But ultimately, this case probably ends up at the Supreme Court. And that, by the way, is where anti-abortion rights groups tell me they want it to go. They want to see this resolved at a national level, and they're optimistic that the high court will agree with the judge in Texas.
11: And abortion providers have got to be wondering what to do after these decisions. I mean, what are you hearing from them?
12: They're talking to their lawyers. They're preparing for multiple possible scenarios. And, you know, they've been doing that for months, really, since anti-abortion groups filed the lawsuit in Texas last year. The guidance these providers get could be different depending on where they are, whether they're in one of those states that was part of that Washington case I mentioned. Melissa Grant is CEO of Carafem, which provides abortion pills at three clinics and through telehealth. Over the weekend, she told me they're looking really closely at what might still be legal after that seven-day waiting period is up.
14: It's going to be working closely with legal advisors in a really rapidly and changing environment. That's what I foresee in the next seven days and likely beyond that.
12: Grant says CaraFem is also poised to increase capacity for surgical abortion if necessary at its clinics, but they only have so much capacity. A spokeswoman for another company called WISP, which provides abortion pills over telehealth, told me they're rushing to put together a plan to let patients stock up on mifepristone in advance of whatever might happen in court. And both of these companies, CareFM and WISP, and many other providers also have been preparing to switch to a different regimen if mifepristone becomes unavailable, Most medication abortions in this country use mifepristone plus a second drug called misoprostol. Uh, But misoprostol alone is used around the world, and many U.S. providers are looking at switching to that approach if they need to. But some advocates tell me they worry misoprostol could be the next target for anti-abortion groups.
11: Sarah, if the FDA has to take the pills off the market, will patients have any other options?
12: You know, right now, many people are using alternative sources to get abortion pills, often online, from overseas. And already more than a dozen states, including Texas, where this lawsuit started, have banned all types of abortion in most cases. You know, I talked to Elisa Wells with the group Plan C that provides information about some of those alternative sources. She says tens of thousands of people are getting pills this way. And she says that's likely to escalate depending on the outcome of this case.
11: That's NPR Sarah McCammon. Sarah, thanks for providing clarity.
12: Thank you.
10: We turn now to Minnesota Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar. She's a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Good morning, Senator, and thanks for being on the Good. program.
14: Good morning, Layla. It's great to be on.
10: So, Senator, you said Judge Kasmerick's ruling on Friday, who you refer to as notoriously conservative, was truly shocking. What shocked you?
14: Well, Layla, what's shocking here is that one judge in Amarillo, Texas, should not be able to decide whether a woman in Montana or Wisconsin or every woman in the country can get the care they need. Um, this drug as been pointed out by your correspondents, has been used in half of the abortions in the US. It's been on the market for more than 20 years after a four year approval process by the FDA and it's used safely in over 60 countries. This is just another example of extremists trying to take away women's rights to make their own decisions about their healthcare. We think they should be able to make those decisions, not one judge in Amarillo, Texas, and certainly not politicians.
10: But look, it's been clear that anti-abortion rights groups have been working to make abortion illegal for decades, which culminated in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. They've been doing that work through the federal courts, which Senator Mitch McConnell helped to reshape with more conservative judges when he was majority leader. So what can your party actually do to counter this?
14: Well, I share everyone's frustration about what this judge I hope you can tell that. But the first answer is to fight well, this aggressively. Well, not aggressive. everyone's
10: frustrated. Some people support oh, what okay. this judge does.
14: All right. Everyone that is interested in getting their own health care. Mm-hmm. All right. So as you look at this, first, got to fight it aggressively in the courts. And remember, he did a really weird thing. Mm-hmm. There's a six-year statute of limitations that covers when you can start appealing these things after they've been decided. This just hasn't been used in a way that he's used it before. So, and even his own, the lawyers challenging it, uh, noted that they hadn't seen anything like this before. So in the fifth circuit, which is yes, conservative, you could see them using something like that as a reason to at least stay this beyond the week so it doesn't take effect, or in fact, ruling the other way. And then the Supreme Court, same thing, based on this procedural, a mess that he got us into as a country, because Mm. you could actually use this for any drug. You could use it for contraception. Some judge could say the same thing. They could say, well, yeah, okay, that was 20 years ago, and I know you have to be able to appeal in six years. But I find an exception to that because I didn't think you should get your approval process done in four. That's how absurd this is. So I think people should be watching for that procedural way out of this mess.
10: What do you think happens if it ends up at the Supreme Court?
14: Look, no one can predict. I just look at the facts here. I look at the fact that the American Medical Association, which isn't like a radical group, they actually said immediately in a very strong statement, there is no evidence that people are harmed by having access to this safe and effective medication. We have got decades of proof to support that statement. Uh, there is a reason why judges don't usually enter these kinds of orders. Mm-hmm. Doctors and scientists make these decisions, not judges. Now so you- I think that's a different posture before the Supreme Court. Than even the Dobbs decision
10: now you've um, pointed out and many have pointed out the majority of Americans support some access to abortion health care and you co-sponsored the women's health protection act which act which would codify the right to abortion access as it was laid out in roe v wade a 2022 version of the bill failed when democrats did control the house now democrats don't control the house so what is the democratic strategy in congress when it comes to access to abortion
14: the first is to push this bill forward. And yes, we don't believe right now those Republicans in the house, those mega Republicans and actually Republican leaders in the house, as opposed to some of the voters out there where you rightly point out 70, 80% of the people are with us on this, are going to let this bill go forward. But that doesn't mean that Democrats in the Senate won't keep pushing it. We just have put together that bill. We just put it forward after we did. In the last Congress, the House under Democrats had voted for the bill before, so we'll keep pushing it. We also can push other votes on this, including the availability of this, of this abortion drug. We have to be aggressive, but the people of this country have to be aggressive. Once again, we call on the people of this country to come out and say what they think that this is an outrageous decision and that this judge in Amarillo, Texas, shouldn't be making decisions for the women of this country. And it ultimately ends up in the election.
10: Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of Minnesota, thank you so much for your time.
14: Thanks, Layla. It was great to be on.
11: You may not have heard of artist Dior Greenwood, but you may already have one of her works in your home. She's among the four artists whose designs appear in a new U.S. Postal Service stamp collection called The Art of the Skateboard.
15: I knew I had to create something
10: that my community would be proud to say, like, yes, she's part of our community. Greenwood's design reflects her Navajo culture and features a skateboard decorated with eagle feathers.
15: We use them to pray. We use them to
10: just bless our food, our water
15: our existence really
11: that design will appear on millions of stamps
15: me being allowed to you know express our work on this level kind of will put the navajo nation back where they need to be and that is on the
10: map so people know where we come from the stamp also reflects greenwood's love of skateboarding which she says came from her younger brother
15: it brought my brother pure joy and i figured like oh i want some of that like let me (laughs) try to get into that so i We'd steal his skateboard every now and then when he wasn't around.
11: The Postal Service says the Stamp Collection's vibrant designs capture the excitement of skateboarding.
1: There's a lot of great creative energy in the skateboarding subculture and uh, we thought it was time to recognize that.
11: William Gicker is the USPS Director of Stamp Services.
1: What goes on to our national stamp program is really representative of the full
16: nation.
11: And skateboarding, once seen as a rebellious sport, now gets the Postal Service's stamp of approval. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up, railroad unions are warning that longer trains and fewer workers are leading to dangerous conditions. And in 20 minutes, a decade after the Boston Marathon bombings, we hear from a survivor of that day about what's brought her joy in the time since the attacks. Right now, it's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
11: Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday.
0: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place and the 36th Annual Sheep Shearing Festival. Sheep shearing and herding demos, fiber artists, and more, April 22nd in Waltham, goreplace.org. AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston, alprime.com. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer, gentlegiant.com slash careers.
0: Sunny today with a high near 61, mostly clear tonight with a low around 45. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 73. Looks like we'll stay in the 70s on Wednesday and Thursday, and on Friday, we may reach the low 80s. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 721.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. This is Morning Edition from
10: NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil.
11: And I'm Amy Martinez. Since 2012, nearly all of North America's biggest railroad companies, such as Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern, adopted Precision Scheduled Railroading, or PSR, as their standard way of operating their freight train service. The U.S. Government Accountability Office put out a report in December where they spoke to railroad companies, worker unions, and shippers. And while nothing is set in stone for what defines PSR, they all generally agree that reductions in staff and
1: longer trains are the basics. In the past, about a 1.4-mile-long train was considered huge. Now trains are two, even three miles long. That's Dan
11: Schwartz. He and his colleagues at ProPublica dove in to examine precision-scheduled railroading.
1: Long trains are just one tenant of PSR. Other things they're doing to reduce cost is they've dramatically laid off a lot of their workforce. So since 2015, they've laid off about a fifth. And a lot of those cuts have been in maintenance workers. There's fewer people to catch trains in disrepair. Also, these longer trains, another tenant, tend to require more maintenance because they've got more components, more stress on those machines. And another big thing they're doing is they're trying to get the trains moving quicker in and out of the yards because an idle train makes them no money.
11: For railroad companies, precision-scheduled railroading has allowed them to cut costs and boost profits. And despite data from the Federal Railroad Administration showing that last year, the country averaged roughly three train derailments per day, The railroad industry claims PSR has led to fewer problems.
1: However, what do railroad professionals say? The problem is there's not very good data out there. And that's a little bit of a quandary of the regulators on making. But, you know, when we talk with people in the industry, outside of the industry, looking into the industry, basically experts, they say long trains are not necessarily more dangerous, but under this system of PSR, doing more with less. The conditions are ripe for long trains to to be dangerous. You know, those dangers are not being mitigated. Is it because precision scheduled railroading
11: is still fairly a new thing uh, and maybe there isn't enough time that's
1: gone by to really get some data? Or are these things just not being looked at? It's really more the latter. The Federal Railroad Administration, they're really the sole regulator of safety on the railroad industry, the FRA. They, for nearly two decades, have been noting long trains and, and long trains derailing and crashing, but they, they've they never been systematically recording data on these long trains. We looked at more than 600 of their uh, investigative reports going back to 2005 to 2020, and we found nearly 20 derailments of long trains and in, in which they crashed for reasons associated with their length. You know, it paints a pretty pretty alarming picture, but the FRA is still not convinced of their danger, and they've never been recording systematically the length of trains, which means we can't draw any trends from the, you know, the universe of trains running in the U.S., and, and it's really, we just have anecdotes. So there's no
11: rules, regulations, protocols when it comes to making trains longer, because just common sense to me, Dan, makes me think, well, if something is longer, it might be harder
1: to control. Yeah, you're correct on that. A we've talked to a lot of workers, an engineer who drives the train often needs more training to handle a long train. They aren't given that. You know, there's a lot of other requirements that should be met to satisfy safety concerns, but to date there's no regulation capping the length of trains. Of course, Congress could, you know, step in at any time and try to do something about that. State Lawmakers have tried, and in every instance we've seen, they've been rebuffed by court, saying only the feds can regulate the railroad industry. In the Federal Railroad Administration, the FRA, they could impose an emergency order or something along those lines to cap the length of trains. But they told us that, you know, to do that would require good data so that they could make a strong argument that wouldn't get slapped down in court. And, well, they just, they've never been recording the data.
11: That train in East Palestine, Ohio, had 150
1: cars attached. Did the length of that train play a factor in the crash, or was it something else? So far, it doesn't seem the length of that train played a factor. That train was 1.8 miles long. What investigators believe did cause that derailment was an overheated wheel bearing. But even there, even though the length probably didn't play a factor, it does seem, according to our reporting at ProPublica, PSR played a role in that derailment. We learned that Norfolk Southern, the company that owned that train, has a policy that allows that help desk to wave crews off of an alarm. And that very thing happened late last year in October in Sandusky, Ohio, with the Norfolk Southern train. Um, it had a hot wheel. It tripped a detector. The detector told the help desk, you got a problem here. The help desk told the crew, continue on. And then minutes later, the train derailed and dumped molten wax on a, what is normally a very busy street. Fortunately, no one was on the street at the time, got injured, but it's you know, that kind of policy is very typical of precision scheduled railroading. It prioritizes moving trains quickly and efficiently over safety. Ultimately,
11: what do you think it's gonna to take to get people thinking about this a little bit more, at least offer some kind of real investigation and study into what this is, and if it's safe enough for the rail industry to continue using it. I mean, it, it fine, it, I understand if it if it's, something that's more effective and cuts down on costs and increases profit. I can understand how, you know, a business would want to do it, but if it's causing or if it, there's even a chance that it's causing all of these derailments, why wouldn't anyone think,
1: "Hey, we should kind of take a <laughs> take a pause and figure this out?" I think that moment might be now. This East Palestine derailment uh, is a incredible disaster and it's really captured the national consciousness and you know, trains are on, on the mainstream news in ways that they haven't been in the past. I would think that would lead to some action in Congress on this to give either the FRA some more teeth or maybe get the FRA started on a rules-making process to put some more regulations on the industry. But I, I can't imagine all of this pressure, all of this attention on the railroad industry and, and um, some positive change doesn't come out of it.
11: That's Dan Schwartz, a reporter with ProPublica. Dan, thanks. Thank you, A. This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, a close look at the debate over whether Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas should have disclosed gifts from a conservative billionaire. And in one hour, 10 years after the Boston Marathon bombings, the team that was working in the medical tent speaks publicly for the first time about that day. It's 729.
9: Funding for WBUR Boston Marathon coverage comes from Marathon Sports, remembering all those affected by the bombings at the 2013 Boston Marathon. MarathonSports.com.
16: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in southern France say at least four bodies have been recovered following yesterday's collapse of a building in Marseille. A natural gas explosion has not been ruled out as a possible cause. The Justice Department is investigating the leak of dozens of classified documents online. Those documents include detailed information about Ukraine's military capabilities amid Russia's ongoing invasion. NPR's Joanna Kissis is in Kyiv.
8: It's clear the leak has had an impact. For example, an advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky told CNN that Ukraine has already changed some of its military plans because of the leak. Uh, Remember though, the documents did not paint a very flattering picture of Russian capabilities either. Some Russians are also crying disinformation.
16: The Pentagon says it's been in contact with congressional committees and U.S. allies. Thousands of faculty and staff at Rutgers University are going on strike. Kenneth Burns with member station WHYY says the unions have been seeking a new contract for months. Unions
18: have been without a contract for 10 months. The three unions walking the picket line, they're seeking a wealth of concessions that will economically protect workers, things like paying adjunct faculty equal to their full-time counterparts, job security for everyone, and a living wage for
16: grad workers. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston Marathon is a week from today. Nearly 1,800 volunteer clinicians will staff the course and finish line. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports that among them will be a core race medicine family of sorts. This ad hoc family emerged
6: from the horror of the 2013 bombings. These volunteers were there and recovered by leaning on each other to help manage medical operations at more races around the country, now about a dozen a year. Chris Troyanos is the Marathon's medical coordinator.
19: Every one of these people, medical or not, I mean, I trust them with my life. I mean, I know that they're going to do what we need, and I never question it. I don't have to worry about it.
6: Troianos' race medicine family will be on the job through the weekend, packing supplies, equipping medical tents with cots, wheelchairs, and IV lines. A final touch is hanging dozens of handmade quilts sent to Boston from around the world after the bombings. For 90.9
0: WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Boston is preparing to celebrate the life of a prominent civil rights activist today. Mel King was the first black candidate to make it to the final round of the city's mayoral election. He died last month at 94 years old. There will be a public visitation for him this afternoon. Mayor Michelle Wu will also attend a wreath-laying ceremony in King's Honor today. His funeral will be held tomorrow. Shuttle buses will replace blue-line trains between Government Center and Wonderland starting tonight. The change will happen each evening tonight through Thursday, so crews can work on the tracks. Daytime service will not be affected. It's 733.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100 percent electric and 100% BMW.
0: The Bruins made NHL history last night with their record breaking 63rd win of the season. They beat the Flyers 5-3 to in Philadelphia. The Bees will host the Washington Capitals tomorrow. The Celtics ended their regular season yesterday with a 120-114 to win over the Hawks at the Garden. The Seas will now wait to find out who they'll play in the first round of the playoffs. And the Red Sox won their third straight. They beat the Tigers 4-1 to yesterday in Detroit. The Sox will visit the Tampa Bay Rays tonight. Low 60s today under sunny skies, mid-40s tonight, mostly sunny again tomorrow and in the low 70s. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 734.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. From Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from the Doris Duke Foundation,
11: this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy e. Martinez in Culver City, California.
10: And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The U.S. Supreme Court is facing ethics questions after ProPublica reported last week that Justice Clarence Thomas for years accepted luxury trips from a billionaire GOP mega donor without disclosing them. Thomas responded to the report with a statement. In it, he said in part that he was, quote, advised that such hospitality from close personal friends with no business before the court was not reportable. Stricter disclosure rules went into effect last month, but will justices comply? Northwestern University Law Professor Emeritus Stephen Lubet says he doesn't think so, and he joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, and thanks for being on the program. Good to be with you. So why are you so doubtful that these rules will be effective?
7: Well, there's no enforcement mechanism, and in the past, uh, the justices have adhered to them when they wanted to, and not when they didn't. Um, Justice Thomas says he'll follow the new uh, the new interpretation. I I don't really doubt him about that. Uh, but it's all very contingent because uh, Chief Justice Roberts and before him Chief Justice Rehnquist have both said that the uh, de- declined to say that the rules were uh, validly applicable to the U.S. Supreme Court.
10: No, you said there's no enforcement body. There's no way to make sure justices do comply with this.
7: They're the Supreme Court. <laughs> they do what they want.
10: So the Judicial Conference of the United States makes the rules, but they don't enforce the rules? I mean, what does this body do?
7: Well, they make the rules. Uh, there's an enforcement mechanism that, you know, the ju- judges have life tenure. So short of impeachment, uh, there's uh, no pe- penalty uh, that's applicable to the ju- to judges at any level in the federal courts. There is a system in the lower courts of uh, reporting, and it can lead to uh, censure or reprimand, but it does not apply to the U.S. Supreme Court.
10: But this is the highest court in the land, and it's important that Americans trust the court, and there isn't a perception of conflict of interest here. So, did justices never have to disclose? Were there no rules before March Fourteenth when no, this there went were into rules effect?
7: But- there were were rules before March fourteenth uh, regarding gift disclosure. Uh, the justices said that they would comply with them. Uh, they do file annual reports disclosing uh, disclosing gifts. I would say that the previous rules uh, definitely covered at least some parts of Justice Thomas's excursions uh, with Mr. Crow. Uh, the new rules are much more specific and would absolutely uh, require uh, reporting of these sort, this uh, sort of travel and, uh,
10: and lavish
7: hospitality.
10: Now, this pro-publica report on Justice Thomas, yes, it's prompted fresh concerns about reforms, conflicts of interests, investigations, but it's not new. These concerns have been around for decades with different justices. What do you want to see to actually address this if this rule is not the answer?
7: Well, the Supreme Court is the only court in the United States that has never adopted a written code of ethics. Every other court has has a written code. Uh, the US Supreme Court has strenuously resisted announcing what its own standards of ethics are. Uh, that should be remedied. They should adopt a code of conduct. Um, at the very least, this will let the public know what the justices expect of themselves Uh, And there will be transparency that we have not had in the past.
10: Stephen Lubet is an emeritus professor of law at Northwestern University. Thank you for joining us.
7: Good to be with you.
11: All right. What's more annoying than paying taxes? Well, shopping for health insurance is pretty high up there. But Sarah Bowden with member station WESA in Pittsburgh reports that in a growing number of states, filing taxes can actually make finding health insurance a little easier.
21: Deanna Visionita does people's taxes in Maryland. And when she tells her clients they might qualify for low-cost health care coverage, many don't believe
22: her. It's like a taboo, right? Like, oh, no, 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 no. This is just for a very low-income people. No, it's not. It's not. She's
21: talking about Medicaid, or the coverage you can buy on the health insurance marketplace created by the Affordable Care Act. These plans are now more affordable than they have been in years. And in Maryland, taxpayers can find out their eligibility by simply checking a box on their tax returns. Doing so doesn't automatically enroll them in health coverage, but it creates a warm handoff that gives a consumer an estimate of the kind of financial assistance they qualify for.
22: My experience with the people that I have asked if they have applied, my experience is like 80% of them have qualified.
21: You do still have to follow through and sign up for coverage. Yet, in the windy nightmare that is health insurance, what Maryland created is remarkably efficient.
5: I think anything that
22: helps get uninsured individuals connected to coverage through something they already have to do every year is a win win for everyone.
21: Antoinette Kraus of the Pennsylvania Health Access Network says she was a big advocate for her state to follow Maryland's lead, which it did last year. Kraus notes that the number of uninsured Pennsylvanians and Americans is at an all-time low.
5: So the folks that are left that don't have health coverage are often some of the folks that are hardest to find.
21: But everyone has to file their taxes. By next year, a total of 10 states will have some form of easy enrollment program, including Maine, California, and New Jersey. This is all happening at a time of incredible churn for health insurance due in large part to the end of COVID-19 era policies, which are forcing people to re-enroll in Medicaid or find new insurance if they make too much money. So having a simple way to connect people to health care coverage is a good idea. Coleman Drake is a health policy expert at the University of Pittsburgh, where he studies insurance
16: markets. Most enrollees are eligible if not for zero premium plans with, I should mention, really generous coverage. They can typically get them for under $10, under $20 a month.
21: Drake cautions, using the tax system to point people toward health insurance isn't going to get everyone covered. Only about 10,000 Marylanders have gotten insurance this way since 2020, and that's less than 3% of the total uninsured population in that state. The number in Pennsylvania is estimated to be super small, too. But Drake says there needs to be more initiatives that cut through red tape and lower the administrative burden of getting health insurance. And what Maryland started and Pennsylvania continued is a step forward.
16: Uninsurance in general is extremely costly to society. So whatever we can do here to make signing up for health insurance easy, I think, is an advantage.
21: This lower cost coverage is out there for consumers. To not take advantage of it is like leaving money on the table. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Bowden in Pittsburgh.
11: This story comes from NPR's partnership with WESA and Kaiser Health News. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up in 30 minutes on Morning Edition, the latest on the leak of classified U.S. documents about the war in Ukraine from the man who led the Justice Department's investigation into Edward Snowden. Clear skies and low 60s today. Tonight it falls to the mid-40s, low 70s, and mostly sunny tomorrow. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston at 742. We're funded
9: by you, our listeners, and by Our Planet, live in concert. The Netflix series is now a live concert event coming to Emerson Colonial Theater on April 23rd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. And New England Innovation Academy, featured in the Boston Globe and Fast Company. Limited space for grades 6 to 12 for fall 2023. NEIacademy.org.
0: This Saturday marks 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings. Leading up to that day, WBUR is hearing from survivors about moments of joy they've experienced in the last decade. Marathon bombing survivor Megan Zippin reflected on what she said while testifying against the bomber in court. Here's her moment of joy.
22: It's awesome for me to look at it now because one of the things that I said was I know one day I'll be a better mother and my husband a better father because we will show our children all that is good in this world and all there is to be thankful for. And here we are 10 years later with a 5-year-old, an almost 4-year-old, and a 1-year-old, all boys. And we live deeply in the moment with them. They force you to stay present and we make messy art and they all have super curly hair and we let it be wild and we stand in the wind and like jump in puddles and all those things that really make you feel like I'm here right now, I'm here right now, which things like PTSD can sometimes steal from you. Those boys bring you right back into it.
0: That was marathon bombing survivor Megan Zippin. Coming up at 8.30, we'll hear from the people who worked the medical tent at the marathon in 2013. Join us for more coverage on the 10 years since the attacks here on 90.9 WBUR or by visiting WBUR.org.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from your part time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Britbox, with Sister Boniface Mysteries, brilliant crime solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spin off. Available to stream at slash NPR.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
10: And I'm Layla Faldil. Farmers usually plant in the spring and harvest in fall. Now, more are beginning to plant crops that cover the ground in the off-season instead of leaving fields empty. These are known as cover crops, and efforts are underway to get more farmers to adopt the practice. Jonathan All of St. Louis Public Radio explains how they're used and how they can help farmers and the climate.
13: Tim Gottman's 2,400-acre farm in northeast Missouri looks harvested but among the remnants of corn stalks are blobs of green plants that are thriving despite the cold and windy conditions of early spring in the Midwest. Gottman points to acres of gently sloping land wet from a recent rain.
23: So all this water would be running that way, and, and if them terraces weren't there and the and this green, the wheat and rye weren't here, it would just allow the water to run faster and take the soil with it. And when the soil's leaving, your fertilizer's going with it.
13: Gottman is a big fan of the off-season plants, and he says they're working to improve the bottom line on his corn and soybean farm. He's not alone. The University of Illinois completed a study using a combination of USDA reports and satellite images to produce the most accurate survey of cover crop usage in the Midwest. The study found in the past 10 years, the number of acres using the practice tripled, but it comes with a big caveat.
7: It is...
14: Certainly not at a level that would be necessary for some of the challenges, like the water quality challenges, like soil erosion. It's going to take a lot more acres to get there.
13: Jonathan Koppis is the director of the University of Illinois' Ag Policy Program. He says the new data shows the cover crop usage went from 1.8 percent to 7.2 percent. A big jump, but still a small number of acres. Koppis says he hopes there will be more incentives for them put into the farm bill that's up for renewal this year. He says there could be more bipartisan support for a program that can help reduce fertilizer costs and work to address climate change because cover crops can also help take carbon out of the atmosphere.
7: We can use it maybe to design up policies that will help incentivize the behavior, help incentivize the practice. It can maybe help jumpstart that
1: by showing, you know, funds going in for this practice will get response on the ground
14: and we can measure it.
13: The off-season planting strategy is also getting endorsements from large agriculture groups, including the National Corn and Soybean Growers Associations. Kurt Beckman is the Director of Environmental Programs for Missouri Corn. He says there has been a lot of progress, but there needs to be more. But he also says it's important to farmers to be encouraged and
24: not forced. We really just want to make sure that it's voluntary. We don't want to mandate anything. We don't want farmers to be forced into planting cover crops on their acres and we want them to make those decisions they know their land better than anyone
13: 65 percent of tim gottman's farmland has cover crops on it but he understands why more farmers don't plant them he says large corporate owned farms don't want to put in the time or effort to take care of the land
23: because you got plants out there growing on you on a field that you're wanting to plant and it's three counties away and rain's coming you're not heading a sprayer over there They just want the dirt because they're not really farming for maybe the same reason I am.
13: The current farm bill expires in September and incentives for cover crops will be a tiny sliver of what looks to be a more than a half a trillion dollar package. But there will be countless programs and initiatives competing for those dollars. For NPR News, I'm Jonathan All in Rolla, Missouri.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, reggaeton music is big worldwide, but its lyrics and videos can be degrading to women. NPR's Radio Abulante podcast tries to answer whether you can be feminist and listen to reggaeton. It's 7.50.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and the best Boston arts education. Citizens Bank Opera House, May 19th, bostonballet.org.
12: I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, politician, community organizer, advocate, Mel King was all that, but he was also a friend, confidant, mentor, father, and husband. We remember Mel and his legacy in Boston with those who knew him, worked with him, and broke bread with him. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Nashville officials are expected to vote today on the reinstatement of one of the two black lawmakers who were expelled for participating in a gun control protest on the statehouse floor. Ukraine's air defense could soon run out of missiles without reinforcement, according to leaked Pentagon papers that were published on social media. And this afternoon in Massachusetts, Governor Maura Healey will outline steps she's taking to protect statewide access to the abortion pill Mifepristone. We'll get today's top stories in 10 minutes. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon.
0: Sunny and low 60s today. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 751.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
10: And I'm Leila Faldil. Terrence Blanchard made history last season when his opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, was the first work by a Black composer staged by the Metropolitan Opera. Now, another Blanchard opera is opening at the Met tonight. It's a retelling of the dramatic story of boxer Emil Griffith. It's called Champion. Tom Vitali has this preview.
18: Champion was jazz composer Terence Blanchard's first opera. It premiered 10 years ago in St. Louis, followed by productions in San Francisco, Washington and Boston. But at the Met, says Blanchard, the staging has ratcheted up to another level.
25: I can't even count the number of people we have in the chorus this time. We have 20 to 30 dancers. You put all of that together, plus a full orchestra and jazz
18: ensemble, it makes for a huge production. And it's a production that includes a full-size boxing ring on the Met stage. Champion tells the story of Emile Griffith, a closeted gay boxer, in an era when gay people were outcasts, who rises from obscurity to become world champion, and, in one of the great tragedies in sports history, kills his homophobic arch-rival in the ring. The centerpiece of the opera is an aria called, What Makes a Man a Man? Sung by Ryan Speedo Green in the role of Emil Griffith.
23: What, what makes this man man?
25: Alive,
18: Champion is told in flashbacks. An older Emil Griffith, suffering from dementia, looks back at his career filled with regret for the death he caused in the ring. Terence Blanchard says his opera is ultimately about redemption and forgiveness.
23: What he
25: said in his autobiography really blew me away. He said, I killed the man and the world forgave me, but yet I love the man and the world wants to kill me. And to me, everything that I've written for this opera is centered around that moment. Because we have to get past all of this. You know, it's time for us to grow up as a society.
18: The Metropolitan Opera has commissioned Terence Blanchard to compose a new opera. He says he hasn't picked the topic yet. For NPR News, I'm Tom Vitelli in New York.
11: For three years in a row, Bad Bunny has been the world's most streamed artist on Spotify.
13: For
11: Bad Bunny is at the forefront of a global obsession over reggaeton. The thing is, artists in that genre often write sexually explicit lyrics, sometimes becoming quite misogynistic. Patricia Velasquez created the first Puerto Rican reggaeton archive, and throughout the project she's been haunted by a question one of her college classmates once asked her. How can you be a feminist and listen to reggaeton? At first, Velasquez was shocked. She didn't know how to respond.
22: Because no one had ever questioned my morals that way. I said something like, I listen to reggaeton, and I listen
21: to it every day. I'm a feminist, and I dance to reggaeton the way I want.
11: That clip came from some reporting that my colleague Lissette Arrevalo did for NPR's podcast, Radio Ambulante. First, she takes us back to the beginning of reggaeton.
15: Some say it was born in Jamaica, others in Panama and in New York City, and of course in Puerto Rico.
11: One thing's for sure, its commercial strength was established in Puerto Rico.
15: Since its birth, young people rapped or sang crude and confrontational lyrics, and they were often violent songs that talked about what was happening in the streets. But above all, they made reference to the country's social conditions. Unemployment rates of up to 59% in some areas. Schools in poor conditions, government corruption, and violence linked to drug trafficking.
11: Many songs sounded something like this. It's from 1990. It's Vico C with
22: La Recta Final. <laughs>
11: Not everyone in Puerto Rico was in love with reggaeton at first, some related it to a criminal subculture, and it was impossible to ignore the lyrics that reduced women to objects of male fantasy.
15: Especially because of the content of its videos, which usually featured women in G-strings rubbing themselves on the singers.
11: But eventually, more voices entered the conversation.
15: One of the first persons to change the direction of reggaeton was Evie Queen, who is considered the queen of reggaeton.
11: Arrevalo says Evie Queen broke through in a world dominated by men.
15: It was not easy, of course. Evie Queen has said that their reaction was always critical, that she was too short, that her voice was too thick, almost masculine. But she has said that this difference was her weapon.
11: She began taking reggaeton in new directions in 1997, but in 2003, Evie Queen released perhaps her most important song, Yo Quiero Bailar. A
15: complete revolution for music because it talk about women's consent.
11: Ever since that breakthrough, many LGBTQI plus folks, women and feminists have embraced reggaeton.
15: It is also a genre that has not left aside its roots, the social protest at all levels. And women have been there giving new meanings to the songs and talking about the urgent issues that affect them.
11: And perhaps one of the greatest ambassadors of reggaeton has embraced this message. Here's Bad Bunny with his song Yo Perreo Sola.
15: It is a song dedicated precisely to the freedom of women to have sex and dance whenever they want, with whomever they want, and without anyone hitting on them or pressuring them.
11: But even Bad Bunny isn't absolved from objectifying women. He's done it too. So back to the original question then can you be a feminist and like reggaeton? Patricia Velasquez of the Reggaeton Archive finally landed on this answer.
22: Because I can. Because
21: my feminism allows it. It allows me to decide what I like, what I listen to, how I dance, and how I don't. It gives me the authority over my body and my decisions.
11: Our thanks to Lisette Arrevalo from the podcast Radio Ambulante for her reporting on this.
15: It's
11: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm
10: Martinez and I'm Leila
14: Falter. <laughs>
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clydes, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington now through April 23rd, Huntingtontheater.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.com. I'm
4: Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez.
0: Massachusetts Governor Maura Healy is expected to make an announcement about Mifepristone today as dueling federal court rulings make access to the abortion pill uncertain. It's Monday, April 10th. This is WBR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi Coming up, secret U.S. intelligence documents that ended up on social media appear to show that Ukrainian air forces need a major influx of resources. Also this
19: hour. I could start to feel panic because they're coming to me where do we go? Where's safe? I had no idea.
0: For the first time ever, the team working at the medical tent during the Boston Marathon bombings 10 years ago share their experiences that day. And there may be a new solution for people who suffer from seasonal allergies. In sports, the Bruins break the NHL record for wins in a season, sunny and low 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Two federal judges have issued very different rulings about the abortion pill, Mifepristone. A judge in Texas is ordering the Food and Drug Administration to pull it from the shelves. He has allowed a one-week waiting period to allow for an appeal. And the Justice Department says it will do that. But a judge in Washington state has ordered the FDA to keep mifepristone available to many patients. NPR Sarah McCammon says abortion providers are considering alternatives if mifepristone is banned.
12: Most medication abortions in this country use mifepristone plus a second drug called misoprostol. Uh, but misoprostol alone is used around the world, and many U.S. providers are looking at switching to that approach if they need to. But some advocates tell me they worry
2: misoprostol could be the next target for anti-abortion groups. NPR Sarah McCammon reporting. Iowa's Attorney General's Office has stopped paying for emergency contraception for rape victims. It has also stopped paying for abortions for victims of sexual assault. The office told the Des Moines Registered Newspaper it's reviewing whether this is an appropriate use of Iowa's public funds. Nashville's Metro Council is voting this afternoon to fill the seat of expelled former Representative Justin Jones. From member station WPLN, Cynthia Abrams reports that Nashville council members have made it clear Jones is likely to return to his seat.
22: Jones was expelled last week after leading gun safety protests from the House floor. Nashville's Metro Council is meeting today to elect an interim replacement. One of the voting council members, Zulfat Suara, spoke at Fisk University last week. She expressed her support for Jones and urged community leaders to focus on his original message of gun reform.
16: We're not going to let them distract us. We will still keep calling on them
26: and asking them to make change.
22: Suara is one of at least 29 council members who have said they will reappoint Jones today. He will need just a simple majority of the 40-member council to reclaim his seat. For NPR News, I'm Cynthia Abrams in Nashville. Authorities
2: in southern France say they've recovered four bodies from the rubble of a collapsed building in Marseille. Another four people remain missing. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley says two buildings gave way yesterday in the city. Marseille Mayor Benoit Payon confirmed that the bodies had been found. He said that more than 100 firefighters are still combing the rubble with search dogs to find other people who are missing. First building collapsed in a loud explosion around 1 a.m. Easter morning. A second, weakened by the collapse of the first, came down Sunday afternoon. Officials have not found the cause of the explosion, but are examining the possibility of a gas leak. In 2018, a building in Marseille's old quarter collapsed. The disaster provoked a political uproar because it happened in a poor area of the city's old town, where centuries-old buildings had not been kept up to modern building code standards. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. This is NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Governor Moore Healy today will outline steps she's taking to protect statewide access to medication abortion. She's promising the FDA-approved abortion pill Mifepristone will remain accessible in the state. That's despite a ruling by a federal judge saying the pill should no longer be sold in the U.S., Healy calls the move an extremist attempt to ban abortion nationwide. Today is the first day on the job for the new general manager of the MBTA. WB Warns Andrea Permudo-Hernandez reports there's cautious optimism about the T's future under his leadership.
17: Philip Eng is taking over a system plagued by safety issues and unreliable service. Stacey Thompson, the executive director of the nonprofit Livable Streets Alliance, says what T riders need is pretty straightforward.
22: Riders really want someone who will help make sure the T just shows up on time, gets them to where they need to go, and I think that Philip Eng's general skills align with that.
17: Executive director of the MBTA Advisory Board Brian Kane says improvements won't happen overnight.
1: What if we give him enough leeway in time and expectations
17: are managed? This could be the beginning of something great. Ang says he's looking forward to finding solutions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The
0: mayor of Revere will leave office in two weeks to join the Healy administration. Mayor Brian Arrigo tells Politico that he will step down early to become commissioner at the Department of Conservation and Recreation. He had previously said he would not seek another term. City Council President Patrick Keefe Jr., who's running to replace Arrigo, will serve as acting mayor. Police are preparing for this year's Boston Marathon. It'll be held one week from today. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox told WCVB's On the Record that security can be a challenge because of how many towns and cities are covered by the marathon route.
25: We're confident that that our, our plan is, uh, is is certainly robust and, and should everyone should know coming in that it's always going to be a family-friendly event and we're going to do all we can to make sure everyone is safe.
0: This year's event marks 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings. A heads up for Green Line riders this morning, there are major delays on the B branch heading toward Boston College. That's because of a car on the tracks along the BU campus. Service is suspended right now between Babcock Street and Packard's Corner. It's 8.06.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required.
0: Capital One Bank USA The Bruins won their 63rd game of the season last night. That breaks the NHL record. Boston beat Philadelphia 5-3. The Celtics ended their regular season with a win yesterday. They beat the Atlanta Hawks 120-114. to And the Red Sox beat the Tigers 4-1 in Detroit. A warm and dry week ahead. Sunny today and in the lower 60s. Clear tonight and in the 40s. Sunny again tomorrow and in the 70s. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 807.
11: It's
10: morning edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C.
11: Anime Martinez in Culver City, California. There's still a lot we don't know about a major US intelligence leak that's still unfolding.
10: It involves dozens of classified documents on the state of the war in Ukraine, which have been posted on several social media sites. For
11: more on what this all could mean, we're joined by NPR national security correspondent, Greg Myrie. Greg, this has been moving pretty fast the last uh, few days. What do we need to know now?
3: Well, multiple parts of the US government, and we're talking about the Justice Department, the FBI, the Pentagon, intelligence agencies, they're all scrambling to figure out the source of these leaked intelligence documents. Now, we're talking about dozens of pages, mostly about the war in Ukraine, but it also has US intelligence assessments on other parts of the world. It seems some of these documents were posted a month ago or more on the site Discord, which is popular among teenage gamers, and it. or less just sat there for some time before it spread to twitter and telegram and then the new york times broke the story last thursday now the u.s government is trying to answer several key questions who did this is this one limited set of documents or is more material coming and how extensive is the damage
11: and the who did this that's the mysterious part of all this
3: anyone have any leads No, not really. It's such an unusual case in many ways. There's no obvious suspect. You know, government intelligence agencies worldwide seek to conceal rather than reveal secret documents they might obtain. So they don't have an obvious motive to put them online. Also, uh, some of these uh, postings appear to be done by individuals hiding behind an online alias. And they just seem to be reposting versions that they came across elsewhere. One person uh, appeared to be a young man in California who did not further identify himself. So it's, it, it's simply not clear who might have stolen or leaked these documents and who originally posted them online. So what's on these documents? So based on uh, documents NPR has seen, they look to be briefing slides with lots of maps and charts. And these are put together daily for top Pentagon leaders and other national security officials. And they cover a range of countries. You see references to China, Iran, North Korea. But the focus here is clearly Ukraine and issues like struggles that Ukraine and Russia face in, in training fresh troops and keeping them properly supplied with weapons. But the, the key in these documents is that they provide details on, on issues like Ukraine's dwindling supply of air defense missiles. Now, these air defense systems have been very effective in keeping Russian fighter jets out of Ukrainian skies. And while this general issue is well known, these kinds of details could be very valuable to Russia.
11: Now, U.S. intelligence on Russia has been pretty good throughout the war. Um, Could these revelations
3: maybe undermine those U.S. efforts? Well, that's certainly a huge concern. Um, this leaked material shows U.S. intelligence has clearly penetrated a Russian military uh, on, a, on a, what appears to be a daily basis. And this allows the U.S. to share extremely detailed and timely information with Ukraine on when and where the Russians plan to attack. And that's obviously a huge defense uh, advantage for Ukraine's defenses. Now, Russia will certainly try to make adjustments to, to better protect uh, and disguise its military plans. And, and even with all this said, you know, both sides already have extensive intelligence on each other. So we just don't know at this point whether this, this new material leaking out will change the trajectory of the war. All right, that's NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thank you. Sure thing. For more on this,
11: Brandon Van Grack is now with us. He's a former leak czar at the Department of Justice. He led the investigation into Edward Snowden, and now he's a partner at Morrison Forrester, a firm that represents Discord, one of the social media platforms where the leaked documents have been shared. Uh, Brandon, we don't know who is leaking these documents or where they originated, so what's going on
27: behind the scenes right now as the government tries to figure it out? Well, right now, the government is really circling their wagons, and there is close coordination between law enforcement and Department of Justice and the intelligence community to figure out, one, who, who did this? Um, how did they stop it? But also damage control and sort of figuring out what they need to do to remediate any damage caused by the leaks.
11: Who is doing what? So in other words, what is the
27: DOJ doing? What is the FBI doing? So the FBI uh, is, uh, along with the DOJ, is identifying what third parties, uh, what companies may have relevant information, and is uh, issuing search warrants and subpoenas, and, and that's probably going out, uh, was what's been occurring probably through the weekend. The intelligence community, in coordination with the FBI, is also reviewing the leaked documents to see if they can identify, based on them, who had access to them and any other identifying features.
11: Are any of the people working on the leaked documents or the the classified documents handled by Biden, Pence, and Trump, are they doing anything on this, considering it's it's classified
27: documents? Well, so there should be overlap between some of those individuals, both uh, at the Department of Justice and the FBI and in the intelligence community. Because of uh, special counsel appointments, we don't know exactly what the overlap is, but there should be some overlap of those individuals and expertise. And so certainly there's at least some subset of those persons who have been sprinting for the last few months on those cases. Uh, and now uh, would probably need to do some sort of pivot to focus on this at the time being.
11: So how do they all then try and mop up this leak or at least plug it up as much as possible and also
27: try and gather evidence to prosecute someone later on? Uh, it is, uh, you know, you, you're uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time. Uh, right now, the focus needs to be and is identifying who this person or these persons are, period. That has to be the priority. As that's going on, to the extent that they do identify someone, then you're uh, uh, starting to you know, put together a charging document and, and figure out that aspect of it. But right now, the, the priority has to be the identification and ensuring that, that there are no further leaks coming. Brandon, if this was you, where would you start? Uh, you, <laughs> there, there, you know, there are multiple places to start, which is from the FBI DOJ perspective, mm-hmm. all of the, the reporting of companies and, and individuals where who may have posted this or where it may have been posted, you're collecting that evidence. At the same time, you are closely coordinating with the intelligence community to, again, there are multiple documents and there are images in those documents even of beyond the documents themselves. And I think you are culling through that information to try to narrow... Uh, the group of individuals uh, who may have had access to it.
11: You mentioned it's kind of like an all-hands-on-deck situation. I mean, is this priority one right now, what's happening right now, aside from anything else that might be on people's uh, plates? It's one of the top
27: priorities uh, right now happening, absolutely. I mean, you uh, can't—whether or not uh, people believe that the information inherently in there is sensitive, there is damage that's occurred to national security. The only debate now is how much damage there was, And the threat is still live. We don't know if these individuals, uh, the individual or individuals, still have access to classified information um, and whether there could be additional leaks. And so right now, uh, this has to be a top priority. In the big picture, Brandon, over classified
11: documents, what would you say to someone who says, well, who cares if a president has classified documents in their
27: garage or in their home office? This case shows why it is so critical that we uh, enforce criminally the laws that make it unlawful to uh, willfully retain or disclose classified information. There's millions of Americans that have access to classified information, untold uh, uh, amounts of classified information, and they can't all be monitored. And the way that you control uh, that access and ensure that it's not unauthorized, uh, disclosed to people who don't have access, is to enforce these laws.
11: Brandon Van Grack was the Department of Justice's leak czar. Brandon, thanks. Thank
20: you.
10: The wave of anti LGBTQ legislation passing or being introduced in states across the country has prompted many places to protest, including a community in California. Drag March LA drew hundreds of people on Easter Sunday to walk the streets of West Hollywood, one of the state's most popular areas for LGBTQ people. From Los Angeles, here's Caitlin Hernandez of LAS News.
28: The protest against the bills was full of people in drag marching alongside young and old. Many had pride flags of every color carrying signs saying queer to stay and to protect trans kids. A record number of anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced in state legislatures so far this session, according to the American Civil Liberties Union. Aurora Sexton, a popular local drag queen, used to live in Tennessee. She showed up to the march with a sense of duty to be there for others.
17: When they see us, they know that they're not alone. And we're, we're here marching for them. We're here marching for them, their rights. And we want them to know that um, we haven't forgotten you. And we will be with you every step of the way.
28: She's keeping an eye on what's happening at her old home. This is my community, and this is my
17: family, and we we're at a point in our history where um, we are again called. Our generation is called to defend our rights.
28: The march took over one of West Hollywood's busiest streets, Santa Monica Boulevard. Cars honked at their horns in support as the crowds shouted. For Yorgis Despotakis, the rise in anti-drag legislation worries them. It
1: may be called a drag ban, but I think we're all very aware in the queer community that it's targeting everyone, and especially trans people, under the guise of attacking drag.
28: Despotakis only recently started to dress in drag as a non-binary person.
1: The extent of my drag as a child would be to, like, put a headscarf around my head and pretend to be a grandma. I never had the chance to experiment until I left the country, until I was able to go to places where I felt more safe.
28: California and Los Angeles have largely been immune to the statewide attempts to reduce LGBTQ plus protections. For queer activist Anna Goodman, the state's strong protections were all the more reason to stand up.
17: We're just so blessed to live in a city and a state that supports us, but there's so many other young queer people in the in the South and the Midwest that don't have that
28: support. West Hollywood's mayor has proclaimed April 9th Drag Day, which will be observed annually. For LAS News, I'm Caitlin Hernandez.
10: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, bespoke immunotherapy drops may be a new alternative to shots, pills, and sprays for people who suffer from allergies. And we remember the German designer who created one of the best-selling board games of all time. It's 819.
1: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Sister Act and Then There Were Nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, LyricStage.com. And Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing, goodnewsgarage.org.
3: A Navy warship is being renamed to honor Robert Smalls, a five-term South Carolina congressman and the first black man to command a U.S. naval vessel. But he first made his mark in the Civil War as...
4: A former slave who commandeered a Confederate ship and
3: uh, turned it over to the Union Navy. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today
0: starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny today with a high near 61. Mostly clear tonight with a low around 45. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 73. Looks like we'll stay in the 70s on Wednesday and Thursday. And on Friday, we may reach the low 80s. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston at 820. Today on The Common, the future of Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's rent control proposal. The city council voted for it last month. Now it faces an uphill climb for approval in the state legislature. Host Daryl C. Murphy talks with our State House reporter, Steve Brown. Check out The Common wherever you get your podcasts.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. And from Subaru, with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. It's
10: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Your eyes and
11: nose have probably let you know that it's pollen season. And with mild winter, some trees produce even more pollen, which can lead to a lot of seasonal allergies. But as NPR's Allison Aubrey reports, some people are turning to personalized allergy drops to treat their watery eyes and scratchy throats.
26: As the pollen season grows longer and more people have allergies, you're not the only one sniffling and sneezing. Abigail Bortnick, who lives in the Washington, D.C. area, says she used to be pretty miserable this time of year, with everything in bloom. I had really bad seasonal allergies. I was allergic to pollen, dust, grass, trees, weeds, you name it. I was allergic to it. would have runny nose, itchy eyes the whole deal. A combination of over-the-counter antihistamines and nasal sprays help many people relieve symptoms temporarily. But Bortnick wanted long-term relief. Allergy shots had helped when she was younger. But as a busy working mom, she did not want to go to the doctor every week to get a shot. So her allergist offered an alternative, a personalized allergy drop she could administer herself. I liked the idea of not having to go in for shots and being able to do it at home. The drops are a form of immunotherapy, and Bortnick says they're easy to take. They're liquid, they come in a small vial with a pump on top. I just do five drops under my tongue. And that's all there is to it. She takes the drops once a day. The way the drops work is they contain traces of the very things that Bortnick is allergic to. So it's a personalized serum. Here's her allergist, Rachel Schreiber, who runs a practice in Rockville, Maryland. The idea is we give you tiny amounts of
10: exposure to the allergen, and we build that exposure over time so your body desensitizes to it. These
26: drops are known as sublingual immunotherapy, or SLIT for short. They're made from the same extracts that allergy shots are made from. Dr. Schreiber explains she can mix together different allergens in the serum to
10: match what each patient is allergic to. So let's say you have dust mite, we can put that in. Let's say you have cat, we can put that in. We could put a certain tree pollen in, for example, oak tree pollen. So we can really tailor that therapy. She says
26: this type of immunotherapy is good for patients who don't tolerate or don't get enough relief from other types of medicines. When she first starts patients on these drops, she prescribes an EpiPen in case they experience a bad allergic reaction, but she says this is rare. Overall, she's seen many patients respond well, after several years of taking the drops, including Abigail Bortnick.
17: Oh, I've absolutely noticed that
26: my allergies are much better. I am not suffering nearly as much as I
28: have in the past.
26: The drawback to these allergy drops is that they're not FDA-approved, so they're typically not covered by insurance, Medicare, or Medicaid. Bortnick pays about $600 a year out of pocket. Dr. Howard Boltansky, an allergist at Johns Hopkins University, who uses the drops with some of his patients, says the ingredients used in the drops are FDA-approved. And when they're used to make allergy shots... That's approved, too. But when allergists put these extracts into drops rather than an injectable shot, it's considered an off-label use.
7: I am completely comfortable using allergy extracts that are FDA-approved in an off-label fashion because you take the same exact vials that are used to make shots and instead use the liquid to make drops. He says
26: this approach has been used in European countries for a while. Some doctors in the U.S. don't offer them and say more research is needed, or perhaps it undercuts revenue from office visits for shots. But Boltansky says more doctors in the U.S. are considering drops as an option, given the convenience and safety.
7: Certainly, you can have reactions to both drops and shots, but overall, they are
26: incredibly well tolerated. He says he too would like to see research done to show just how effective the drops can be and have the FDA approve them. But for now, he says doctors will continue to use them as an off label alternative to
17: shots. Alison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Proctor & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. Klaus Teuber
10: has died. If you don't recognize the name, perhaps you remember his work. He was a board game designer whose make-believe island of Catan is known to millions.
20: The
11: dental technician turned game creator spoke with NPR in 2020, and he recalled how a game that he was given sparked his imagination when he was just 11 and living in post-war Germany. It was called Romans versus Carthaginians. When I
27: opened the box of the game, I like the 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 scent of the game. Ah, so wonderful. (laughs) There's adventure in this box.
10: That led him to create Settlers of Catan, a board game where players settle and develop new lands.
25: Catan was revolutionary, and its impact continues today.
10: Eric Arnerson is the author of How to Host a Game Night. He notes that although players race one another to build roads and cities along hexagonal tiles, they also have to work together.
25: Every player is involved throughout the whole game. Even when it's other players' turns, you're not sitting around waiting. The games are always quite close. Nobody ever gets eliminated. It is Just a remarkable
19: achievement in game design.
11: At least 40 million Catan games have been sold, and it's been translated into nearly 50 languages. Toiber had a theory about its popularity.
27: First First thing, it's variable. variable. Every time time it's a new game. You cannot destroy someone's buildings. It's impossible. And you have to
11: communicate. Making it a good family game, Toiber still played the game with his family, although he admitted he rarely won.
10: Katan Studios asks fans to honor Toiber's memory by being kind, pursuing their own creative passions, and enjoying a game with loved ones. Klaus Toiber was 70. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, 10 years ago, volunteers were the first responders for Boston Marathon bombing survivors. They shared their experiences publicly for the first time with WBUR's Martha Bevinger. It's 829. Later this month at WBUR City Space, we're turning Earth Day into Earth Week with a series of events. One will focus on what Hollywood gets right and wrong about climate disasters. Another will feature an interactive science fair for kids. Plus, there will be a concert that combines music and science. Check out the schedule and get tickets at WBUR.org events.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org.
16: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. China's military is pronouncing itself ready to fight following three days of combat exercises near Taiwan. NPR's John Ruwitch says the military drills were in response to last week's meeting between Taiwan's president and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy.
5: Beijing considers Taiwan a part of its territory, and even though Taiwan President Tsai's recent stop in California and another in New York were billed as unofficial, China called them a provocation. China mounted a similar response in August after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan.
16: Beijing's military exercises included dozens of Chinese military planes crossing the median of the Taiwan Strait. The Justice Department is investigating the leak of dozens of classified documents online. Intelligence agencies, the FBI, and the Pentagon are trying to identify the source of the leak. NPR's Greg Myrie says the documents include what appear to be maps and charts focused largely on Ukraine's military. The key
3: in these documents is that they provide details on, on issues like Ukraine's dwindling supply of air defense missiles. Now, these air defense systems have been very effective in keeping Russian fighter jets out of Ukrainian skies. And while this general issue is well
16: known, these kinds of details could be very valuable to Russia. Six people have been killed by an avalanche in the French Alps. This is NPR News.
0: From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. A number of city buildings in Boston will be lit up in the colors of the rainbow tonight and tomorrow. It's a tribute to Mel King, the late civil rights leader and founder of the Rainbow Coalition political party. He died last month. His wake will be held today and his funeral will be tomorrow. Michael Curry served as president of the Boston branch of the NAACP. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston that King's run for mayor when racial tensions were high exemplifies his courage and passion for change.
18: To decide, I want to cross racial lines, neighborhood boundaries, and I'm going to talk to people in, in West Roxbury and in Roslindale, and in Southie and in Roxbury and try to bridge the gaps and bring people together.
0: At 11 this morning, Radio Boston will devote its entire program to the life and legacy of Mel King. The MBTA is not reaching its goals in hiring despite its ongoing efforts. The T says its staffing level is at 87 percent now compared to before the pandemic. A review by the Boston Globe shows the MBTA has not taken a step to address the problem that other major transit agencies have successfully used to staff up. Officials at those agencies have allowed bus drivers to start as full-time employees. The staffing shortage at the MBTA comes as the T plans to increase bus service by 25 percent over the next five years. A section of Broadway near Central Square in Cambridge remains closed this morning after a massive church fire. The fire broke out yesterday at the Faith Lutheran Church, hours after Easter services. No one was hurt. The city plans to look at the building to see what can be repaired. It's 833.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW.
0: The Bruins now hold the NHL record for the most wins in a season. They got win number 63 yesterday in Philadelphia, beating the Flyers 5-3. to The Bees will host the Washington Capitals tomorrow. The Celtics are now waiting to find out who they'll play in the first round of the playoffs. The Seas ended the regular season yesterday with a 120 to 114 win over the Hawks. And the Red Sox beat the Tigers 4 to 1 in Detroit. The Sox will visit the Tampa Bay Rays tonight. Low 60s today under sunny skies, mid 40s tonight, mostly sunny again tomorrow and in the low 70s. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at
17: 8:34. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Uma a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere, at umacom NPR. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place, indeed.com NPR.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupesh Annoy. Every year, a team of volunteers is stationed at the finish line of the Boston Marathon to help people who may need medical attention. Ten years ago, they were the first responders for victims of the marathon bombings. The volunteers there that day have never talked publicly about their experiences until now. WBOR's Martha Biebinger brings us their story and the story of the love that emerged from the trauma. We should note the next seven minutes may be disturbing for some listeners.
6: April 15, 2013 was a near perfect race day. Volunteers inside a vast white medical tent at the finish line remember feeling relief. It wasn't hot like the previous year when runners suffering from heat stroke and exhaustion packed the tent. Then, at 2.49 p.m. The first bomb exploded about 75 yards from that tent. Brian Fitzgerald, an athletic trainer, remembers seeing the smoke. A second bomb not quite a block away rocked Fitzgerald as he made his way toward a tangle of wood and metal fences.
27: Once you stepped into that, it was a different world. It just shocked uh, it was
25: like hell. As soon as you walked in, all you could do was smell blood and burning
1: flesh. Yeah, it was horrific.
6: 760-1-4-0-3. Police on the scene made call after call for more ambulances. One officer pleaded for aid from the marathon's volunteer doctors and nurses. Help up from the medical tent. Get as many people up here to ten from the medical tent. Inside the medical tent, nurse Lynn Landry heard the call for help and glimpsed the unfolding terror. Saw people running by the opening of the tent, looking back over their shoulder. The only thing I could think of was 9-11. Still, this veteran nurse left a runner knotted with cramps, grabbed IV supplies, and headed out.
9: And then I saw what everyone else saw on TV, victims coming toward us. I stopped dead and thought, I didn't sign up for this. I don't know if I can do this.
6: Someone pulled Landry away from the pools of blood and ripped clothing, directing her back inside the tent. A woman with shrapnel wounds needed IV fluids while she waited for an ambulance. And I was shaking like a leaf.
9: I got it in and I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Go from
6: one patient to the next, to the next, and just put in IVs. 22 minutes after that first bomb, emergency responders had sent 97 people to local hospitals. Three people died at the scene. Landry and other clinicians bandaged the less urgent victims and kept tending to runners. They could see news reports on a big screen TV about bomb scares around the city.
24: We got a possible device at six seventy one Boylston. Possible
6: device. Police detonated at least one other suspicious package not far from the tent. A few medical volunteers fled.
19: Now I could start to feel panic.
6: Chris Troyanos is the marathon's medical coordinator.
19: Because they're coming to me where do we go? Where's safe? I had no idea.
6: This from a man whose mission for more than two decades had been to address every Boston Marathon medical need and question before it was asked.
19: Not that day. Not that day at all. No, and I felt very bad I couldn't help people.
6: Troyanos did help many, many people on the day of the bombings and for months to come, while police worked to unravel what was behind this act of domestic terrorism. Within the week, the Boston Athletic Association offered debriefing sessions for roughly 1,800 clinicians and more than 10,000 total volunteers to help them process the trauma. Counseling was available for months. Back at work at a local hospital, Landry realized she needed help. Sometimes I would pull back
9: from patients. And I thought, how do I know they're not a terrorist?
6: And I thought, oh, this is, this is so wrong. So I went to counseling. Eight months later, it was a new year and time to face preparations for the next Boston Marathon. Troyanos needed a rebound strategy.
19: And I'm going, i got to flip the switch. I've got to take more of a defiant approach. Now it's F you to the terrorists.
6: Troyanos helped arrange taped messages from some of the bystanders who'd lost legs, delivering this message to medical tent volunteers.
19: We need you to come back just as strong as ever.
6: Some volunteers took the year off. Troyanos attended one security briefing after another. When the emotion-packed 2014 marathon ended, Troyanos was done too.
19: I, I just didn't think I wanted to do this anymore. And, and not because of the bombing, because it was just, it, it was overwhelming.
6: But out of the fear, anger, and despair that first anniversary kindled, something powerful was taking shape. What Troyanos now calls his race medicine family. He's gathered a few of them for this conversation. It's the first time they've talked at length about the event 10 years ago that forged these bonds.
19: Every one of these people, medical or not, I mean, I trust them with my life. I mean, I know that they're going to do what we need, and I never question it. I don't have to worry about it. The
6: family is 12 to 15 volunteers who travel with Troyanos to a dozen or so races around the country every year. Other members join at each location. They pack the supply trucks, set up cots, run hoses, and IV lines. Race day starts with wake-up calls between 3 and 5 a.m. And the race day playlist. I start dancing on the sidewalk before I get in the car at 5 in the morning. Sarah Menendez is an athletic trainer. She doesn't want to talk about 2013. It was her first year volunteering with the race. That's not a defining moment. We have come together afterwards and that's what we
21: focus on.
6: With love and humor. At official race family events, for example, everyone wears their lucky red underwear. Since this interview is an official race family event, Landry canvasses the room. So we all have on our reds. Do you have on your red?
26: I sure do Do you
6: have on your right Chris? Okay. Laughter and knowing glances travel the room to Emma Nelson, an orthopedic physical therapist. We have to be there. We have to be there for each other So it's difficult to put into words exactly what it means, but it means everything at the same time Whatever Because together, this family has learned they can face anything. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biedinger.
20: Funding for WBUR Boston Marathon coverage comes from Marathon Sports. Remembering all those affected by the bombings at the 2013 Boston Marathon. Marathonsports.com
0: Coming up on Morning Edition, we look at whether super majorities weaken the democratic process in state legislatures. Then at 9, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the increasing tensions between Taiwan and China as China carries out military exercises in the South China Sea, plus why archaeologists want to be included in high level talks about the effects of climate change. In your forecast, clear skies and low 60s today. Tonight it falls to the mid 40s, low 70s and mostly sunny tomorrow. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 843.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast Maine. Gather around. Let's feast.
0: Massachusetts employers are feeling a little less optimistic about the economy. That's according to the Associated Industries of Massachusetts, which released its monthly Business Confidence Index today. W.B. Worson and and Wameka reports.
28: Business confidence is down to 51.5 out of 100 points, and that's considered barely optimistic. Christopher Garin of Associated Industries of Massachusetts says the index has been dropping because the economy is really kind of weird right now.
24: So employers are wrestling with the same things that many individuals are wrestling with. That is inflation, rising interest rates, what's going to be the effect of banking disruptions.
28: And at the same time, the job market continues to be relatively strong. Employers are trying to fill positions. Garin says all of those factors combined make them feel more cautious about the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka.
0: Cambridge based Biogen is laying off members of its multiple sclerosis team. The Boston Business Journal says the drug maker would not say how many people are affected. Just last year, Biogen laid off nearly 1,000 workers. The town of Hull is considering building a major development on its last area of open beachfront. The 12 acre area is along Hull Shore Drive. The proposal includes housing a hotel, retail space, and a park. The Patriot Ledger reports the town is taking public comments on the plan through the end of this month. It's 845.
9: WBUR supporters include Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com. And La Chara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at
10: laqchara.com. Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, the Democratic lawmakers expelled by Republicans from the Tennessee legislature, are determined to get their seats back. And both of them could learn as soon as today what's next for their political futures in the state. A GOP supermajority last week voted out Jones and Pearson after the two young black lawmakers led a protest on the Tennessee House floor calling for gun law reforms. A white colleague who was also up for expulsion managed to keep her seat by just one vote. Our next guest says the expulsions are examples of what happens when one party has too much power ken paulson is the director of the free speech center at middle tennessee state university ken thanks for being here good morning
25: very good to join you
10: so it was a supermajority that ousted these two democrats how does one party having so much power in a legislature affect the democratic process
25: well the problem is that uh it tends to nullify the traditional tools of democracy The first amendment gave us this extraordinary gift in America. You know, we have five freedoms, four of which were expressly designed to give Americans a real voice in the destiny of the nation. So we have the right to exercise our free speech and we can assemble together and march and we can petition the government and say these things need to change. And we can also help keep government in check by supporting a free press. Now in theory, our nation gets stronger and smarter and more dynamic when everyone can share their views. But super majorities, they don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to those four tools of democracy because marches and protests and speeches and editorials, all those things have very little impact if those in power just ignore them. They, you know, they never have to worry about the legislation passing. They don't uh, have to worry about getting reelected because largely gerrymandering has taken care of that. And, and they don't have to worry about critical editorials or, or news stories, because they just need to call that fake news. And so collectively, all these things we as Americans use, the tools we have used in 1791 to participate in democracy, to have our voices be heard, those in effect are nullified because those in power simply don't pay attention.
10: So do you think what happened in Tennessee uh, could happen in other parts of the country with supermajorities?
25: Well, there are two things that happened in Tennessee. First of all, it was just the raw emotion, the anger by the lawmakers and the General Assembly to pay back Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, and and Gloria Johnson for what they described as uh, violating the House's decorum and insulting the dignity of the House. <laughs> and when you listen to those, and when you realize that that throughout the history of Tennessee, I mean, this didn't happen until 1866. It has only happened when people have committed crime or extended immorality. Uh, so when you realize that they're kicked out because really speaking loudly on the floor of the house about the quality of work the legislature was doing, they, they were critical of them. They were saying they weren't being responsive to the representatives. You have to wonder what triggered that, how that rose to the level of a crime. And and you look at it and you go, wait, It's obvious, they were criticizing these lawmakers who didn't want to be criticized in public. And so this was payback, and obviously that has major, major impact on on democracy and the way we speak freely in our society.
10: Ken Paulson is the director of the Free Speech Center at Middle Tennessee State University. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at steps workers are taking to mitigate the impact of inflation by boosting their own paychecks. It's 8.50. Hey,
19: this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition.
0: Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR.
19: You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a Little Red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite
2: or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It
0: can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Leaked documents from the Pentagon show Ukraine needs more missiles to keep its air defenses strong. Governor Moore Healey plans to outline how she'll protect access to the abortion pill Mifepristone in the state this afternoon. And in Boston, the new general manager of the MBTA, Philip Eng, has begun his first full day on the job. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay in touch with the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Experience springtime like nowhere else. See the bright orange nasturtiums in full bloom in Isabella's courtyard. GardnerMuseum.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com.
0: Member FDIC. Sunny and low 60s today. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 851.
24: We're leading this morning with the special stresses of inflation and rising interest rates in the poorest parts of the world. Marketplace Morning Report
9: is supported by
24: Progressive Insurance with
9: Snapshot. Learn more about Snapshot at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Snapshot, not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents.
24: I'm David Brancaccio in New York. When interest rates go up, debt gets more expensive to pay back, right? And that's money many low-income countries don't have the leeway to pay. Plus, higher interest rates push up the U.S. dollar, devaluing foreign currencies effectively. Now, these are key topics with the spring meetings of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund kicking off today. David Malpass is the outgoing president of the World Bank. Thank you
23: for joining us. Thank you, David. Hi.
24: People are talking about an emerging debt crisis. What are you seeing? Are low-income countries going into default?
23: A lot of them are under severe pressure. Sixty percent of the poorest countries are at high risk. And you're right that the higher interest rates are part of it, the slower world growth. The rates were so low for so long in the advanced economies that it's going to take some years to straighten that out.
24: And you're hosting the first in-person meeting of a high-level round table on global sovereign debt. That's the debts of nations. Do you think the lenders bear some responsibility here for pushing too much of this debt on those countries?
23: Yes, the lenders bear responsibility as well as the borrowers. It's a two-way street. All of the creditors, the lenders, have done very well in this environment. I've really wanted to get a more inclusive group of people, participants, talking about this problem. So we have the debtor country finally able to come and sit at the table and say, here's our problem. The debts are too much and the contracts are not disclosable. And then have the lenders actually respond to that. The private sector, the various parts of China that have lent into these countries are at the table. And I hope going to find a way to break through the stalemate.
24: We're talking about sovereign debt, the debt of nations. We're talking about big international lenders. But, you know, we're really talking about struggling actual people who feel the brunt of this if a country were to go into default. This is about individuals and it's about poverty.
23: That's exactly right. And the poverty numbers have gone up over the last four years. That's worrisome and it's connected to that what's gone on in the advanced economies, you went through a period of 10 years of near zero rates, but that really has come to an end. And we're now in an environment where we have a whole new economic landscape in the advanced economies, post-monetarism, and there's no easy way out of that. And some of the countries are caught in this same mix.
24: Mr. Malpass, you're leaving your job before the end of your five year term, you were criticized for not fully getting the need to deal aggressively with climate change. What can you say about that controversy now?
23: Well, there are big problems in the world. And one of the tendencies of the world is to point fingers elsewhere. The key thing is I've been super busy. Uh, four years, it's a very challenging job here at the World Bank. And that comes on top of a super challenging job within the U.S. government. Uh, so I've, I've put in six years of public service. We accomplished a lot at the World Bank, including on climate. You know, in my tenure, we doubled our spending on climate, but whatever you do, uh, the world is going to look at it and say, well, we want to go to conferences and we aren't really going to put new money in, uh, but it should be solved by the World Bank. The World Bank is doing a huge, immense effort in this area. I hope it can have impact and impact on the world.
24: David Malpass, president of the World Bank. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. We talk more about that subject and the gathering debt crisis in emerging economies in the extended version of that interview, streamable from the Marketplace page. And it's nice that some people get a holiday even if you and I have to work, right? Financial markets are closed in Europe for Easter Monday now. Here, it's a regular workday. S&P futures are down 6 tenths of a percent. Dow futures are currently down 3 tenths percent. NASDAQ futures down 8 tenths percent. And now that March Madness is over, the corporate quarterly profits season begins. Not that I'm implying a correlation with the timing there. The big banks reveal how they did starting late this week.
9: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. Otter's AI Meeting Assistant helps reduce meeting fatigue by automatically taking live meeting notes, capturing slides, generating summaries, and assigning action items. More at Otter.ai. And by VantageScore. VantageScore's credit scoring models help expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com.
24: We're not getting the raises we were last year. The Labor Department reported on Friday that average hourly pay went up 4.2% year over year compared to nearly 6% a year ago. And while some retail inflation is coming down, the pay is not keeping pace, something people drawing paychecks know all too well. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman has more.
4: In a recent survey, Bankrate.com found that, in spite of rising layoffs, slower hiring, and fewer job openings, the majority of Americans on the workforce tell us they plan to look for a job over the next year. Senior economic analyst Mark Hamrick says workers who quit and find a new job typically get a raise about double that of workers who stay put. Meanwhile, according to a new report from the Pew Research Center, when people do get a new job, only about three in 10 actually ask for a higher salary than the employer initially offers. Pew's Rachel Minkin says there's a gender gap here.
26: Women are more likely than men to say they didn't feel comfortable asking for higher pay.
4: There's also a gap when candidates do try to get a better deal.
26: Women are more likely than men to say they were only given what was initially offered after asking for higher pay.
4: Young workers, meanwhile, feel the most uncomfortable asking for more money, but are the least satisfied with the salary they actually get. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace.
24: And as companies deal with higher interest rates and plan for what some economists see as a possible recession over the next year, firms are buying less equipment. Apple's shipments of computers, not iPhones or watches or AirPods, but minis and iMacs, were down more than 40 percent January to March, according to Bloomberg News. A separate published report last week indicated Apple is pausing its manufacturing of the microprocessors at the center of many of its computers. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. 8 p.m. American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. It's only in the 40s now, but we'll eventually warm up for a lovely spring day today. It'll be sunny and in the low 60s. Clear skies in the mid-40s tonight, then another great day tomorrow. Mostly sunny and in the low 70s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer. A world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org.
8: I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.